I invite you to turn with me because it will be tying into our primary text this morning in 2 Kings chapter 6, verses 15 through 17. When the servant of the man of God rose early in the morning and went out, behold, an army with horses and chariots was all around the city. And the servant said, Alas, my master, what shall we do? And he said, Do not be afraid, for those who are with us are more than those who are with them. Then Elijah prayed and said, O Lord, please open his eyes that he may see. So the Lord opened the eyes of the young man, and he saw, and behold, the mountain was full of horses and chariots of fire all around Elisha. This is the word of our Lord. Elijah's servant was under the impression that they were absolutely overwhelmed, outnumbered, defeated, and there was nothing left to do but surrender. Alas, the opposite was true. (laughs) The complete opposite was true. (laughs) And it's important for all of us to learn and understand that from that text, God's math is not our math. What I mean is that one person plus God is worth more than all the collective armies and forces of this world combined. And this is the principle that Elisha was teaching his servant. And it's the same teaching that Jesus wants us to receive from our gospel text this morning as well. Because just as the servant could only see the the Syrian army right in front of him, and he missed the heavenly host surrounding them, sometimes we make the same mistake, don't we? When we only see the world's hatred towards us, or we only see the obstacles that are mounted against us, and we miss that same plethora of angels and the forces of God surrounding us. We forget that there's far more with us than there is ever against us. So a question will emerge from our text this morning. Do we see the bigger picture or do we only see what's right in front of us? We ought to see the bigger picture. And it's in light of this principle that Jesus opens our text with some simple but profound words. So have no fear of them. I love that. Because all of that buildup that we did last week, talking about the world's hatred towards Christ, the world's hatred towards Christianity, the world's hatred towards people like you who have the audacity to believe this book and what Jesus taught us. Jesus is saying, after all of that, don't fear them? Yes. Absolutely, in fact. We're told to beware of them. We're told to be wise as serpents around them. But we're not told to fear the world, ever, in Scripture. We're told to be wise and to be, around, and to be aware of their schemes, but never to fear. Instead, rather than hiding in the dark in our fear, Jesus tells us to proclaim him and his message openly, as verse 26 continues, saying, that so have no fear of them for nothing is covered that will not be revealed or hidden that will not be known for what i tell you in the dark say in the light and what you hear whispered 
proclaim on the housetops. I love that <laughs> because some, some of Jesus's ministry has admittedly been private up until this point. He had told people after healing them, uh, you know, keep quiet about the seed to it that you tell no one. But, but the time is coming, and for us it now is, for all of Jesus' teachings, all of his truths to be made wonderfully, gloriously public. You know, Jesus had, had Jesus revealed his identity too early, people would have gotten the wrong idea of the type of Messiah Jesus was coming to be. He had not come to be an earthly Messiah, a ruling, a literal earthly kingdom. They would have missed that, and people would have no doubt tried to have made him the the king of literal Israel uh, before his time that is still yet to come. And the opposite could also have been true. People would have tried to murder him before his appointed time, as people tried to do on occasion. I think John chapter 8 is one of those occasions. But now, everything about the Christian faith is gloriously public. And I say that because there's no such thing as some secret knowledge that they teach you in seminary. There's no secret hidden texts that were omitted from the Bible that are in some monastery somewhere that only the really high and holy types get the privilege of reading or some other nonsense like that. So when you hear about fraternal orders, lodges, secret societies, and all things like that that supposedly have the real truth of who Christ was or what Jesus did, that's all hogwash. <laughs> That's all stuff created for the media. That's None of that is actually rooted or grounded in reality, and any first-year Bible student could tell you that. Those things are all of the flesh. They appeal to our flesh. We all want to know the secret things, don't we? That's We, we want to be in the know. But that's the ancient heresy of Gnosticism. You can look that up later. Um, but that's all things that pertain to the flesh. The things that are of the true spirit of God, that's all written in a book that you guys all have in your laps and in the pews in front of you. This is where all the truth is hidden. It's not hidden that well. It's open for us all to have in, in the best-selling book of all time, mind you. <laughs> and this message, Jesus tells us to proclaim openly and boldly. Even in times of persecution, because of verse 28, that tells us, And do not fear those who can kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. Now, wait a minute. Who is this? Who is going to destroy both body and soul in hell? Because I'll give you a hint, it's not Satan. It's not. Just read the book of uh, Revelation. Read Revelation 20. Satan is going to be punished in hell, not ruling from it. It's, uh, it's, it's not his launch pad for operations. It's where he himself and his demons will be eternally tormented. You'll never get this idea of Satan ruling in hell from reading the scriptures. It, it, because it's just not there. You can't point to me the verse. And 
Frankly, even after a week of studying this text, I'm not even sure where that idea came from. I personally thought it was Dante because a lot of erroneous stuff came from his book, but it's not. I can't accredit him with that one. Um, But one thing is clear. It's a consequence of not accepting the clear teachings of Scripture and incorporating all these other outside ideas into the narrative of Christianity that never belonged there in the first place. That's how you end up with these erroneous doctrines. (laughs) My friend, uh, Dr. Falzerano, who came out here a couple of months ago, uh, informed me that one early church father allegorized the Bible into this cosmic battle between God and Satan. And that constantly they were in fight with each other and they built, rebuilt biblical doctrines around this thought. And again, you won't find it in scripture. And they had to create all of these weird doctrines, possibly even that this idea of Satan ruling in hell as a consequence of this erroneous idea that was introduced fairly early into church history. But, and a lot of other strange doctrines too that I don't have time to get into right now. And so it, it's, it's unwise to do, obviously, for a number of reasons. But funny enough, it's the same principle of the reason why it's unwise to lie. Now, we all know we ought not lie because it's one of the Ten Commandments. You know, it's, it's a sin against God. But it's also just, frankly, unwise. Because as soon as you lie, you now have to create up another lie to cover up that lie. And then another lie to cover up that lie. And then you have this huge mountain of lies and you forget what the truth is. Or there's no version of the truth actually rooted at what began your story of lies. And the, the same thing is true of a lot of these unbiblical beliefs. Once you unhinge yourself from the truths of Scripture and you start incorporating all these outside ideas, you, you, you miss the ideas that are actually written down. And you, you're left with this weird theological scaffolding that doesn't belong there in the first place. So, in short, no, I'm going to reject that idea, that interpretation. Satan is not ruling from hell. He is just another created being. He's not omniscient. He's not omnipotent. He is inferior to our God and Father in absolutely every way. Now, there's a lot more that could be said about that character, but this is a worship service, not a less. I don't want to make a sermon about that guy. So, moving forward, the one whom Jesus is saying to fear the one who can destroy both soul and body in hell, is God. Is God. The main thrust of this whole paragraph is to fear the right person. Not to fear people, as we had said in the prior paragraph of this text. Nor to fear Satan and his minions, because they can't do these things. But to fear the Lord. Because the worst thing that all of those other characters can do is usher you in to the presence of your father, to usher you into the arms of Jesus Christ in heaven on the other side. That's the worst these guys can do to you. And when you think about it that way, that's not that bad. The sting of death has been taken away, 1 Corinthians 15 tells us. 
But I ought to have a great fearful hesitancy to willfully sin against or deny the Lord of all creation who is able to cast me into hell in my unbelief if I'm an unbeliever, if I don't believe these things, if I haven't believed in the gospel that saves. But please keep in mind, now, when I say fear, I do not mean terror. There's a big difference there. Now, somewhere close to two years ago now, I actually did a full-length sermon just on this topic, on the fear of the Lord. It's, it's still on the website somewhere if you want to look for it. But the, the idea is that we need to have a, instead of fear, it's not, not instead of fear, but by fear, I don't mean terror. I mean a reverential awe of God, almost as the one we ought to have had growing up of our earthly fathers. Uh, a fearful hesitancy of stepping out of line for some fear from some discipline from someone who loves us and cares for us. That's what it means to fear the Lord. And again, I got into the weeds in a whole full-length sermon I'm going to have to keep moving forward. But just as we ought to have had he hesitancy to disobey, to disobey our earthly parents, how much more so our heavenly Father? Because when you have a healthy fear of God, you're not going to fear your fellow man, nor Satan or his minions. You're, you're, you're going to, you're going to have a peace amongst all the craziness going on in the world. And that's the point. That is the bigger picture that Jesus is inviting us to have, to fear the right thing, and we will not fear the wrong things. <laughs> you know, sometime in my childhood, <laughs> I can't believe I'm admitting this, sometime in my childhood, I, I admitted, I had a one of those irrational fear of bees. One of those things that I just developed during my childhood. I still frankly don't like them. But, you know, I'm the man of the house now. I have to take care of things. <laughs> but if you, to the, today, if you were to give me a choice between being locked in a room with a yellow jacket or being locked in a room for an hour with a grizzly bear, I know which one I'm choosing. I'm not afraid of that little stinger anymore when I'm afraid of what the choice of being afraid of is. And I see some of you guys are connecting the dots I'm pointing out there. When we have an objective perspective on our situation, we're going to fear the right thing. And the things we were previously afraid of aren't even going to bother us anymore. So have no fear of what a man can do to you physically, but have an awe and veneration for what God can do, for what the God who holds your destiny of your soul is capable of. Have that veneration towards him. <laughs> Hugh Latimer was a, a clergyman in the, during the Reformation in England. And one day he was preaching before King Henry VIII of all people. Now, some of you guys who are familiar with history know he was a pretty bad dude. And not necessarily somebody who loved the truth. Let's put it that way. And he found himself saying to himself before the sermon, remember, the king is here. Be careful what you say. And yet, 
a deeper voice welled up from within him that said, The king of kings is here. Be careful what you do not say. And that centered him and gave him the courage to present the gospel as it meant to be presented that day. (laughs) So keep that bigger perspective in just before your eyes when we do face various forms of persecution as we've been discussing in the overall narrative of this text. Beware of men, but don't fear them. Fear or have a reverential awe of your heavenly father who is going to do far more to his enemies than his enemies could ever possibly do to you. Some of you need to write that down. That God, that God is able to do far more to his enemies than his enemies can ever possibly do to you. Now, some erroneously have taken this verse and taught that it implies what, what theologians call annihilationism. I'm not going to go too deep into this, but it's, it's this doctrine that souls will be annihilated in hell and that punishment is therefore only temporary and not eternal because souls are going to be destroyed in hell, it says. The problem is this word for destruction doesn't mean annihilation. It means great loss or great ruin. And furthermore, when you compare it to other texts where Jesus plainly tells us about hell, the the emphasis is always on the eternality of it. Mark 9.48 says, In hell the worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. 2 Thessalonians 1.9 says hell is everlasting destruction, ongoing, never-ceasing destruction. Now, I can't wrap my mind around what that could possibly look like. And it actually hurts my heart when I consider the fact that actual people are actually going there and experiencing the horrors of what I'm talking about right now. But as horrific as that is, I can't pretend that the Bible isn't clear on what the doctrine of hell is. I can't pretend that it's going to be better than it actually is from the very lips of Christ. Terrifying as it is, we are all grateful that God has made a way to escape it. That God is not the one who delights to cast people into hell. There's all kinds of verses throughout the scripture that says that God takes no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but says, turn therefore and live as he has provided the way to peace on both sides of eternity through the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ and what he has done for us. That simply by believing that Jesus took all of my sins on the cross, that by believing he did that and repenting, which means changing my heart, changing the direction of my life and saying, God, I'm done living for myself. I'm now living for you. Simply by making that change of heart, and believing the gospel, believing what God has done for me on the cross, all of this can be escaped. And we can enjoy God forever rather than the alternative which we have highlighted in our text. And that is a truth that we gather here Sunday after Sunday to celebrate and enjoy that God has made that way for us to enjoy him forever, to fear him as our father rather than to fear him as our judge, which is a huge difference.
I could stay on this point for the rest of our time together this morning, but we must move forward. Verse 29, Jesus develops this idea in a different perspective, saying, Are not two sparrows sold for a penny? And are not one of, and not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father. But even the hairs on your head are all numbered. Fear not, therefore, for you are of more value than many sparrows. And I love that Jesus brings this up because as many of you are reading this text with me, you guys are saying, this sounds familiar. As it ought to. Jesus is calling us back to a teaching he did in Matthew chapter 6. Many of you were with us for that. Where Jesus talks about how the birds of the air and the flowers of the field, they neither sow nor reap, but yet their fa- your heavenly Father provides for them. How much more so will he provide for you? Jesus, being the master communicator that he is, is intentionally tying back to this, this previous point that he had said a few chapters ago. You know, allowing us to make some connections and see even more depth to these truths than we might have missed the first time going through it. And I, for one, am glad the apostles had to hear this message twice because I get missed the point half the time. I need to hear these truths time after time. And it's like God is saying, John, get it through your thick skull. This is what I want you to understand. And he faithfully communicates it to us again and again. This this beautiful reminder of keeping this bigger eternal perspective. God cares for the birds. How much more is he going to care for you who were made in his image? How beautiful is that? And he brings up the sparrow for a reason. Because sparrows were cheap back then. It's, it says here you could buy two for a penny. And the penny was the smallest um, uh, unit of measure in the Roman system as well. Not just, you know, our American system. And you couldn't not buy, you couldn't buy less than two. You gave them the smallest quantity you have, they give you two. And I read in another place, if you give them two pennies, they give you five. They would just throw another one in there. You couldn't give these things away. They were so cheap. And if even these worthless, cheap birds cannot die without the father being acutely aware of every one of them, how much more so aware is your heavenly father going to be and show compassion towards the death and martyrdom perhaps, of his own children. Doesn't that give us a bigger perspective? If God has all the hairs on our head counted, how much more is he aware, furthermore, of our struggles, of our trials, of our temptations, of the difficult things of this life? Because let me tell you, as a father, I don't have all the hairs on my kids counted. I am aware, though, of all of the big things going on in their life. I know the peer pressures of my soon-to-be seven-year-olds are facing. I know of the fears associated of going into kindergarten that a five-year-old is going to be facing. But I don't have all the hairs of their head counted. But yet my, our Heavenly Father, their Heavenly Father does. So if our Heavenly Father knows even their hairs, what does that say about how well he knows about all the other things? We don't think about that very much. It's the, that, the verse isn't talking about our hair. 
It's talking about much deeper things than that. And Jesus then concludes this paragraph with one final encouragement, but also one final warning, saying in verse 32, So everyone who acknowledges me before men, I also will acknowledge before my Father who is in heaven. But whoever denies me before men, I will also deny before my Father who is in heaven. Now that's a sobering verse. Because there's no such thing as a secret Christian. You're either a Christian or you're not. Now, I've met and I've talked to a bunch of people who want to keep their Christianity private and secret and hidden. You know, I'm going to believe all of these things, but I'm not going to say it out loud. I'm not going to confess it. I'm not going to tell anyone I believe this. People don't seem to like Christians these days. I don't really want to be associated with that. Jesus hasn't given us that option here. But rather, as some of you might remember, going back to Matthew chapter 5, Jesus has called us to shine your light, not hide it under a bushel. That's what we're called to do. And this is important because a, a Christian, especially in the first century, mind you, and this is true of our brothers and sisters around the world actively facing persecution, Theoretically, they could have avoided the persecution simply by denying that they were a Christian or just never saying out loud that they were in the first place. But that's strictly being condemned here. Because guys, we must remember, our Father is the truth. Jesus said, I am the way. I am the truth. God is truth. But Satan is the father of lies, the father of deception, the father of secrecy. That's where all of that comes from. That's where the temptation to hide who we are and shrink back comes from. And you can't expect God's blessings when you're using the devil's tactics. But when you do God's work God's way, you'll be amazed at what can happen. I read, I heard this amazing story of a group of missionaries who were smuggling Bibles into a closed off country. And they get stopped at the border. And they got a truck loaded with Bibles and backpacks and crates and containers, all different kinds of things, illegal in this country. And they're being stopped at the border on the way in. And the officer goes up to him and, sa- and says to them, so what are you guys carrying in there? And he just looks them straight in the eyes and goes, Bibles and gospel tracts. And he just bursts into laughter. He just starts laughing as hard as he can. His missionary buddy riding shotgun is laughing as hard as he can. They're laughing. They're having a good time with it. And the most amazing thing happens. The guard starts laughing. The guard, the guard doesn't then say, just laughs it off and he's in a good mood now and he just waves the guys in, bringing all of the things in there. Amazing. How do you explain that apart from just a working of God and God honoring those who put him first and doing God's work God's way? That's what God has told us to do, and I think we can expect God's blessings if we remain the church that does God's work God's way. I can't emphasize that enough. But all clever stories aside, This is a serious warning from Christ. 
Because if we refuse to acknowledge Jesus on this side of eternity, he says he will refuse to acknowledge us on the other side, which is a terrifying thought. Charles Spurgeon once wrote, What Christ is to you on earth, so you will be to Christ in heaven. Uh, Jesus continues to say in Luke uh, 9.26, Whoever is ashamed of me and my words, of him will the Son of Man be ashamed when he comes in his glory. So we ought to know whom we have believed. not pre- And be proud of who we are as Christians on this side of eternity. Not to deny or shrink back or minimize what Christ is to us in any circumstance. But yet, every sin, including this one, that is repented of and confessed, can be forgiven. I don't want to give you guys undue stress over this verse, because frankly, I know that this verse can be forgiven because Peter committed this very sin, did he not? I mean, to this, <laughs> I, hope for, I hope for his sake there aren't chickens in heaven, because it sure might bother Peter every time he hears the cock crow. Ooh. Reminding of the time he denied the Lord multiple times overnight. But yet even he was forgiven, even he was restored. So even if you are guilty of this sin, you too can have forgiveness. But we have to treat this one seriously because of the warning attached to it. If, if So if that's you, if you've been denying or minimizing your relationship with Christ... Now, be concerned about it and repent. And if you do, I can assure you again from the scriptures that can be reconciled. So one final thought before we close. Because this this verse is so often brought up rightfully in the negative context. Because that's how it's framed. It is a warning for us not to deny the faith, especially as Jesus is saying this to people he knows will be martyred for the faith, not to shrink back or deny his name. But there's an opposite side of this that gets neglected that I want to give its proper place. Because Jesus also says here, everyone who does acknowledge me before men, I will acknowledge also before my Father who is in heaven. That's a beautiful thought to consider. When you consider the the vastness of creation, how many billions of people are alive today? How many billions upon billions of people who have existed throughout the centuries? And God knows you. Jesus knows you and will confess you before the Father. That's a cool thought. Because let's be honest. History doesn't remember too many people. You ever consider, you know, how many names are out there that you had to memorize to get through a high school history test? It's not that many when you consider the vast number of all the people who've ever lived. I mean, think about it. How many people can you honestly even name who were alive during the Civil War even? A fairly recent event in world history terms. Some of you guys are going to be history buffs, and I'm sure one of you guys can name me a dozen names or a couple of dozen names. But what's even a couple of dozen names compared to the number of people alive at that time? Or the number of people who've been alive over all the centuries? It's it's a rather small number. 
We only really remember the movers and shakers of society. The rest of it is just lost. We rarely remember, certainly forget the people who worked behind the scenes, even supporting those big names over the years. But the Father does. Jesus does. And he will confess those names and your names before the Father. You might not be remembered by this world. I hate to break it to you. <laughs> it's the way that, it's the way that things are. Now, even the contributions of prior pastors that have sat behind this pulpit will be relegated to a plaque in the back of this building and nothing else will be remembered of them. Myself included, by the way. I'm aware of this. But it's not my desire to even be remembered for that. My prayer is that of, all, of, uh, of John the Baptist. He must increase and I must decrease. And I'm sure many of those names in the back felt the same way. But the point is, even the great contributions in our local community will be forgotten. But you will not be. Your contributions, your faith, what you have done for Christ will be and has been remembered by God and will be for all eternity. That's an amazing thought when you consider it. <laughs> that you will be, that he remembers the prayer life of all the faithful praying mothers and grandmothers and grandfathers and parents of all kinds in this church. He remembers those prayers. And he remembers what we have done for our families. He has not, nor will he forget those who have labored behind the scenes in a church like this. He will not forget those who have printed bulletins in this church, especially before there were even computers to do the job. I've heard some stories. It's amazing what God has done. He will not forget those who have done that. He will remember those who stepped forward to teach a Sunday school class. He will remember even those who bring a cup of cold water before his name, as this chapter later concludes with. But if even a cup of cold water is remembered, how much more what God does downstairs through the food pantry and its ministries. God remembers all of it. And it is special towards him. That is the eternal perspective we need to have. Not living for glory and memory in this world, but to be remembered by our Father forever in the next. That is what God has called us to do. That is the life that we are called to live. And I'm going to close with one final quote. I, I sincerely mean this. I'll be done after this. The British missionary to China, Charles Thomas Studd, once wrote this in a beautiful poem. I can't top these words. He said this. Only one life. Yes, only one. Now let me now say thy will be done. And when at last I, I'll hear the call, I'll know I'll say twas worth it all. Only one life. T'will soon be past. Only what's done for Christ will last. Thanks be to God. Amen.